Ajahn Amaro and I thought that we'd begin uh, with uh, continuing in the spirit of dialogue, uh, that you've had a chance to uh, connect over lunch, maybe to begin to digest uh, some of what we all spoke about this morning, and that you might have some, some more questions or some comments. And, uh, So I'm I'm from the is it on? Yeah. I'm from the Zen tradition and I was kind of excited to think to hear about the mind taking the shape of whatever you think about. And at the same time in our tradition we call we talk about the mind as being a mirror, the jewel mirror samadhi, the mind that reflects without an opinion um, what's happening. Uh, and that it does it automatically, that we don't really have much choice in it. We just so if you have any comments about those two concepts of how the mind works? The mind isn't what we think it is. <laughs> For starters. Um, I always butcher these old Zen stories, but a story is worth a thousand words. And apropos of your question, um, this idea of the mind as a mirror or in polishing the mirror, that emphasizes a, a, what, what I call a training perspective, you know, that we're purifying, that we're refining. Um, <clears throat> but in Zen, there's also the absolute perspective, which is things exactly as they are, 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 are none other. Just luminous and vivid, just as they are, present the whole universe. Uh, and there's a story that, um, that talks about that. Uh, Huineng, the, the ancestor that uh, Ajahn Amaro uh, was referring to earlier, um, was, a, was a, a rather green trainee at the monastery. And... Um, was very gifted and had some insight rather quickly. And uh, the teacher wanted to uh, name a successor. And uh, apropos of what we were speaking about earlier in terms of poetry, uh, asked for people to submit a verse. And by the verse, he would, he would determine their uh, level of awakening and suitability to Receive transmission, his, his dharma. And uh, so the head monk, who had been there for years and was very practiced, uh, submitted a verse which emphasized, uh, and, and I forget the, the exact verse, which emphasized, you know, this reflective quality of the mind and how, how polished it is. Um, Can I recite the verse? Oh, please. <laughs> it's great to have a Buddhist with a good memory. 
the, the body is the Bodhi tree, the mind is uh, like a bright mirror stand. Every day we wipe it clean, wipe it clean, so that no dust will alight. Right. Right. So, 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 right. so thank you. <laughs> I love it. Can I take you with me? <laughs> it's very expensive. I know, I know. He's got the jewel of no price. That's how expensive it is. Um, and then Wayne Eng's poem was, was very different. And, and I hope you remember that too. <laughs> I, I didn't think we'd be collaborating this intimately. Uh, <clears throat> true Bodhi has no tree. Um, uh, the mind possesses no stand. Uh, what is the point of... Uh, there, there is no point to wipe it clean, for where could the dust alight? Mm-hmm. Oh, so the third line is, from the beginning there has not been a single thing. Where could the dust alight? Right. Yeah, that's a really classic uh, Zen. Do you have something in your tradition that reflects the mind as a mirror? But let, let, if, if, I, if I could, um, j- just want to tell you about the jeweled net of Indra, because that's a different version of the mirror, which I think is, if we're going to talk at the level of models, we're talking at the level of models, everybody. This is a model, you know, this is not the mind. But um, the... Uh, Jewel Net of Indra is a, is a Huayan, a early Mahayana image, which I think is very interesting. And the way that I think about it is as a sort of an old macrame sort of uh, thing with a jewel at each net. And each of the jewels, if you're looking at it from the inside of the sphere, uh, reflects each and every one of the other jewels. And yet... Each jewel shines with a very distinctive light, all its own. And the only way the whole thing can exist is if both are true, that each jewel is composed by all the others and if each jewel shines with its own distinctive light. And uh, I think this model, uh, as models go, captures the uh, simultaneity of the vivid Uh, uniqueness and difference along with the intimate interdependence of mind. It's one that I'm preferential to. I'm sorry. In the the Theravada scriptures, the the image of the mirror isn't used in in a similar way. You don't have that. Um, One very beautiful but uh, compelling image that's similar to the Huineng's response verse. Also, just to add a little bit onto that story, what happened was that the Shen Hui was like the senior monk uh, and everyone thought he was definitely going to be the next patriarch, but he had doubts about his own level of accomplishment. And so he wrote up his verse on the wall of a corridor that was being painted with some murals in the middle of the night. And so then... um, Everyone gathered around, that, oh, this is a very impressive verse. And the abbot said, oh, very good, very good, very good. And then he said, everyone should learn this verse and recite it. Um, and so uh, <clears throat> there was about 1,000, 1,500 people living in the monastery at this time. So Hui <laughs> Neng, who was the kitchen boy, you know, 
and was illiterate, he couldn't read, um, was uh, working in the kitchen pounding rice as he would do one day and then he heard this, this other um, uh, uh, layman who was staying at the monastery reciting this verse. He says, what's that, what's that you're reciting? He says, oh, haven't you heard? This is the verse that Shen Hui wrote and uh, he's going to be made the next patriarch and the abbot told everyone to learn this verse and recite it. And then um, Hui Ning says, hmm, you do me a favor? He says, what? He says, well, you can write, can you? He says, yeah, yeah, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm a court official, I can write. He says, um, okay, well, uh, maybe uh, uh, you can write me a, res- write me a response uh, for that. So he says, well, I'm not sure about that. Well, you know, maybe we just make our way to the corridor and where Shen Hui wrote his verse, we can put something up beside it. So then that night, uh, the, the slightly anxious you know, court official goes along with his brush and pot paint and and Huining says, okay, now write this verse. And uh, so then he recited that verse, you know, the uh, <coughs> true Bodhi has, has no tree and so on. And then <coughs> next day, there's an even bigger crowd in the corridor going, ooh, who wrote this? Oh, this is, ooh, he's really putting Shen Hui in his place. Wow, ooh, you understand? This reads like true, true Chan wisdom. Mm. And then the abbot got wind of this as abbots always do the, rum, you know, the rumblings in the, in amongst the community and so the abbot came up and said rubbish took his shoe off and scrubbed it out and stomped off Ooh. well that looked like it was real wisdom obviously he must have got it wrong Ooh. but no one knew who'd done it because the verse had appeared and then later on that day the, uh, the abbot appears in the kitchen and uh, wanders over by where the, the young kid's pounding the rice and um, walks over to him and uh, looks at him, knocks his, his uh, staff on the ground three times and you know, turns his back and walks out. So uh, Hui Neng says, okay, third watch, the abbot's door, I'll be there. <laughs> so that night then Hui Neng went to the abbot's room at uh, the third watch of the night and knocked and the abbot said, what are you doing here? He says, well, you told me to come. <laughs> Good lad, come in. <laughs> and that's when he gave him, made him the next patriarch. He said, "Okay, well, you're an illiterate. Not only you're an illiterate, you're from the you're from the deep south. So everyone's going to think you're a hopeless incompetent. So if I name you the patriarch, there's going to be trouble. But I'm going to do it anyway." So he gave him the bowl and the robe that night and said, "You better leave." <laughs> and that's why Huineng took off and went and hid for 16 years. And it wasn't until uh, some time later he hid up in the forest with a, a group of hunters, actually. And then it was many years later that he was—he then emerged and then took up his role as the sixth patriarch. So. <laughs> I'm the Theravadan, right? <laughs> I wish I could tell the Jataka tales as well as uh, as well as that. I'm afraid I can't. Well, I confess, I, I've read the life story of Hui Neng about five or six times. Mm-hmm. So I, know, I know his sutra pretty well. So. But anyway, um, one of the teachings in the Pali that, that relates closely to the poem that, that Hui Neng composed was um, <coughs> the Buddha said, um, if, you have, if it's early in the morning and uh, the sun is rising and it shines through a, a window on the western wall of a house, where will the sunlight land? And the monkey's talking to you as well. It'll land on, on the ground. 
as well if, what if there's no ground, where will it land? He says, well, it land on the water. He says, well, if there's no water, where will it land? And he says, well, if, if there's no water for it to land on, or no, no earth, then it, then it won't land. And so then the Buddha says, you know, just so, you know, consciousness which is without support, you know, unsupported consciousness, um, it, uh, uh, this is the, the mind free from delusion, uh, is an unsupported consciousness, and so that it, it doesn't land anywhere, it has no, no basis, no support. And that uh, <coughs> the, um, that, that image of nowhere to land, uh, let me see if I can. Um, the uh, and that that image of the sunlight coming through the through the window is um, is a very helpful one because it's you know, it's rather like you know, we name. There's nowhere for the dust to land. There's no thing. You know, from the beginning, there has never been a single thing. Where could the dust alight? It's like seeing the absolute perfection, seeing the Dhamma in all things. So then at the end of that um, uh, the Buddha says um, you know, that it does not land. In the same way when there is no passion for physical nutriment, sense contact, consciousness or intention, that consciousness does not land or grow. That I tell you is quite free from sorrow, affliction or despair. So it alludes to that same quality of awareness which is not landing on anything for which kind of landing does not apply. Thank you. This, uh, this idea of mirror, I think, uh, just want to say a couple more things about it. Um, you, you may know about Gary Snyder, the, the poet. Some of you have heard of Gary Snyder. O- old Zen student. Still kicking around up in the foothills of the Sierras, although his wife just died. Um, his poetry traveling buddy is a Japanese poet named Nanao Sazaki. Have, have you ever heard of him? Uh, he has a very small verse, which I thought was apropos. It was um, sitting quietly, meditating, a voice comes to me. Break the mirror. I think, I think there's some ideal we have that we can become, and it's funny, as I talk about it, I think that this was the earliest ideal from psychoanalysis, too. You know, the idea that the analyst is just the mirror, you know, just a blank screen, um, or that a baby comes in with, with a, maybe it's the blank screen, Matthew, a baby comes in with a blank Tabula screen. Rasa. Tabula rasa. I mean, we can no, long, no more be tabula rasa than the sun is the moon. And I think to strive for, for that is, is not particularly helpful. Um, and I may be generating some controversy here, but, but I don't think so. But if I do, that's fine. Um, you know, because we've been talking about how these dualistic constructions superimpose our agenda on the way things are, the way they are manifest, uh, and the way they arise and pass, and their true nature. 
At the same time, um, if there is not a pure perception, then in some way, well, let's back up. Let's back up. I don't know if you've seen the film, uh, What the Bleep uh, Do Do We Know Anyway? Well, well, the first half of that I found really fascinating. And there's a, a, a part in that where some physicists are speaking about the nature of reality. And they're saying exactly what we're talking about, that from the beginning, there is nothing we can call a thing. Uh, every perception we have, literally, is a construction. And um, looking at it from that perspective, how we connect the dots, how we perceive, reflects our insight and our shila and our dhyana. If we connect the dots and we see a bum, then he becomes a bum and we treat him as a bum. We see him as a bum. If we connect the dots and see a Buddha who's struggling, then that's who he is and how we treat him. And a whole chain of cause and effect unfolds from that. So uh, this idea, again, I'm just trying to speak to this idea of the mirror, which gets a lot of play in Zen, actually, a lot of play, uh, particularly in, 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 in Soto Zen that's, that's not informed by some of the Rinzai path. And uh, not, not all the Soto teachers talk about it, but some of them talk about it. And, and I'm not partial to it. Um, and that's why. Other questions? I have two questions. Um, when, when you, um, very early on when you were speaking, when you were saying, uh, when you were talking about I am, um, um, is this when you say I am, you're referring to uh, a separate individual. Is that what you mean by it's a, a person? Um, you know, the person, the personality, the separate, the separate one. Well, there's there's um, the Buddha defined in, in the in the Pali literature. The Buddha defined two levels, two two distinct levels of identification. The course level is, is known as Sakaya Ditti. And that means, uh, Sat means true, Kaya means the body, Ditti means view. So literally the, the, the view of the real body. Uh, sometimes translated as a personality view or identity view. And so in a way that can be characterized by the, uh, the presumption, I am the body, I am the personality. So that's Sakaya Ditti. So that is one of the three uh, obstacles that is um, uh, abandoned with stream entry. So doubt, uh, the um, personality view, and um, the attachment to conventions, rites and rituals and so on. So Sakaya Ditti is, is I am the body, I am the personality. So um, then the other layer of identification is much, much more refined. And there's a very interesting 
exchange with a, is a, a monk called Yamaka who says, not Yamaka, the little Jewish cat. <laughs> <laughs> I knew. <laughs> Y-A-M-A-K-A. Yamaka. And he says, even though that there is no identification of the body and the personality, still there is the feeling, I am. He says, just as with a, a flower, you can't say that the scent comes from the stalk or from the sepals or from the petals or from the stamens, yet, but yet the scent is there. You know, uh, I can't describe what it is that this, this feeling comes from, where, where the attachment is, but certainly there is this attachment, I am. So that's called asmimana, and that's um, uh, one of the last five of the, the fetters that are, are dropped before arahantship. So that's actually the, the um, third to last of the, of the, of the ten fetters. So it's, it's a far more refined quality of, of delusion. So that, but that's the one that would, the Buddha's pointing to in letting go of the conceit I am. Asmi, mana. Asmi literally means I am. Uh, and then mana is the word for conceit. So it's, a, it's that... It's, so it, there can, asmi, mana can be can be present even when there's no identification with the body or the personality. It's the I feeling. Wanted is, if I could comment on that, you, unless this question is, is, is right on the same, no, different question. Okay. Um, there's an experience that's described, again, in a sort of mythological way, but it doesn't just happen all of, it, all of a piece. Uh, during normal human development, you know, in the baby. And I don't know if you're familiar with the British pediatrician, psychoanalyst, uh, Winnicott. He, he's fairly, fairly uh, more well-known than some analysts. In, in any case, uh, he was a pediatrician and he actually studied children rather than formulating <laughs> theories about how ba- what, what babies are going through, you know. And so... He actually said that this experience of I am is a critical developmental experience that that has to happen. Um, And I don't mean just I am sort of separate from you. That's a different developmental milestone. But a a, a global I am where where there's an experience of what he called aliveness. And if this doesn't happen, and it's fostered and cultivated by the relationships with the significant others, then um, there's a breakdown in this capacity to feel alive in the body and the body in the world. Um, And uh, if that breaks down, then what compensates for that is the sort of conceit of, of I am. I am bigger. I am better. I am special in that way. So developmentally, and I don't think the Buddhist teachings are reducible to any psychological framework, so don't get me wrong, but, but I, I do think there's an interesting idea in this that in, in early development and, and even through later development, the, one of the ways of seeing the genesis of this conceit of I uh, set apart from others, better than others, or could be trumped by others, persecuted by others, persecuting others, that kind of, is as a breakdown product of a not good enough whole body, mind, 
spirit, place, relationship, sense of I am, which he called aliveness. There's just another way to think about that. Yeah, it's also, you know, even though the, the, the Buddhist language is that you know, I am is a, is a you know, bad thing. And uh, it's also, you know, it's, particularly as this is a day on non-duality, I think it's worthy of mentioning someone like Sri Ramana Maharshi for whom the I am was the, the, the key positive. You know, this is the gateway. That, right. that that's the, actually the transcendent statement. Whereas, uh, and so that I think it's, uh, it's important to say that that's as equally valid as saying I am is the big problem. Uh, to say I am is the big solution. It's just you can hold it in different ways. And so that it's, I'm not saying that just to be deliberately paradoxical or, or to, no, but, it's, but it's important to realize that uh, just as Joe was saying, that, that, that sense of, uh, of Winnicott saying his aliveness, that that is, a, is an ordinary tangible sense of, of, a, of a greater quality of, of being. But in the, the I am, the Asmi Mana, that, that the issue I, I feel comes where by that I feeling is taken to be an absolute reality and that the, the wisdom that knows this is just a feeling is the liberating wisdom. Uh, you know, a little child, that, you know, it's extraordinarily important for them to be kind of well-balanced and individuated to have that feeling. But a, a three-year-old doesn't have the capacity to go, oh, this I, this, this, uh, <laughs> this aliveness, this is just a feeling. <laughs> they don't have the, the... Maybe at seven they could pull that off. <laughs> but at three, you couldn't. Yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, Ramana Maharshi is my teacher in that <laughs> So that's why I, I was asking the question from that perspective. Uh-huh. And um, there, there can be a sense that uh, the, there is no one to get enlightened. There is, there is, enlightenment happens, but not to anyone. And yet, at the same time, I am. <coughs> all at the same time. Uh-huh. So I have another question too in, in the same light. Um, you were speaking earlier about um, in the sense of not to and non-dual of practice and well, for the one of just trying to express uh, uh, spiritual practice and the goal of spiritual practice. Mm-hmm. Um, as uh, a conditioned practice to um, become the unconditioned, I don't understand that. Could you could you uh, talk about that just briefly? Yeah, well, I didn't I didn't use the word to become. The well, I, I I know you didn't. I'm trying to express it. Yeah. I'd rather you you talk about it. Than me. Well, the the one of the images that's used in classical. Theravada literature is the, in what's called the questions of King Melinda and the monk Nagasena explains it, he's saying that the, the mountain can symbolize the unconditioned and the path to the mountain is the, the eightfold path the mountain is not created by the path, it's not a product of the path but in order to uh, to um, 
to say get to the mountain or to realize the presence of the mountain, then the path is followed. So that the mountain is not a product of the, of the path, it's not related to the path in any other sense than the path goes uh, to it. So that similarly the Eightfold Path, those are conditioned qualities, right view, right action, right speech, you know, and the whole gang of them. These are things that, you know, things that I do or don't do. You know, they are conditioned conventional realities. But, like the path that goes to the mountain, that if they are followed, then they create the, the capacity for that transcendent realization to, to open, to, to be uh, embodied. And so, um, it's rather like an analogy that Ajahn Chah would use was, would be that uh, the Dharma is like groundwater. It's always there. If you dig a well, you hit the water. Uh, the, the well doesn't create the, the groundwater. But if you want to get to the groundwater, you've got to dig the well. So that the well is not, is not the water, and it doesn't create the water, but it just enables an access to that already existent timeless reality and so that it's um, the path does not uh, generate or it's not, it doesn't make, make me become <laughs> it's more like that ultimate reality is, is already uh, existent is the foundation of everything already right. and so that the condition is like, this is the mysterious and amazing thing and, and as a uh, Roshi uh, Joseph was was describing that it's uh, in some of the, the, the interesting you know, phrases he was using this morning about the um, you know, how you uh, express that that you know that mixing of the conventional and the ultimate and how that is brought into being. I mean, this is the mysterious thing: how these these, these things interplay with each other. That it's through the skillful use of the conventional that the ultimate is realized. It doesn't generate it. And, but then the ultimate is, rea- is, is then manifested not through some sort of special, you know, magical light or, you know, unique color on the spectrum. But it's, it's manifested, its presence is manifested through the, uh, the ordinary, through the, the conventional sense world. And I thought in, in the light of that, I thought that the interesting thing... Um, to share is in the Thai language, the word for ordinary is tamada. The word, and that comes from the Pali, dhammata, meaning of the nature of ultimate reality. So, right there, you've got the clue. The word meaning normal, ordinary, tamada, it's an ordinary thing, it's unremarkable. Uh, but it's the, the, the word is actually from of the nature of dhamma. So the clue is pretty large. You know. <laughs> yeah, thank you. That's beautiful.